Open your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 13. 1 Samuel chapter 13 is where we're going to be this morning, the entire chapter. 1 Samuel chapter 13, 1 to 23. What we fear often dictates what we do. When we were in high school, we feared being rejected by our friend groups, so we did what they did. We talked the way they talk. We wore the kinds of clothes that they wore because the last thing we wanted was to be rejected. We wanted to be liked by them. You know, as adults, it really doesn't change that much. In fact, we may go to work, and we may talk a certain way at work or at school. And, and maybe we wouldn't even fathom speaking that way in a church setting around church friends. And so we change the way we talk, what we say, how we speak, based on the circles that we're in. Social circles, work circles, church circles. We want to be liked by people, and we fear being rejected. And so we alter the things that we do. We alter our own behavior in order to be received by the people around us. In our passage this morning, Saul is going to be rejected as king of Israel. It's a really harsh passage when you read it and when you really think about it. But more than just reading this and seeing Saul is rejected as the king of Israel, it's our job to really investigate why. Why is he rejected in the way that he's rejected? When faced with this impending threat, he's looking out across the landscape and seeing the Philistine army encroaching, and they're big, they've got a lot of people. Saul has an option before him. His option is to fear and trust God, Fear God and trust God and obey His Word. Or, to take what seems to be the more pragmatic route and keep his army from fleeing in front of him. So the question is, what will Saul do in response to his fear? What does he fear the most? 1 Samuel 13, 1-23. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear! And all Israel heard it, said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avin. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. 
He waited seven days, the appointed time by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with him, stayed at Geba and of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah, to the land of Shual. Another company turned toward Beth Horon. And another company turned toward the border that looks on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of the shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for our understanding in the word that you've put before us to help us see what's taking place here in the passage, actually understand what this actually has to say to us. In order to do that, we need your help, and we pray for your Spirit's presence among us to open our hearts and our eyes and our ears, see and hear and apply what your Word says to us. So we pray that may we be different, convicted, challenged, moved, stirred towards worship of you because of what we have read in your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As you can see in this passage, it's a bit of a mess, isn't it? Here we have a king who was, not even minutes ago, named king over Israel. He was anointed several different times, was proclaimed as king. All of a sudden, he makes one mistake. One jumping the gun 
acting a little too early, one misstep, for reasons that as we look at the text, we kind of go, I mean, I get it. I get why he did what he did. I might be inclined to do the same thing. We can all relate to what he's done. With one stepping out of line, Saul is rejected as king. His line isn't going to continue on the throne anymore. In addition to that, Israel went from quite literally on the mountaintop and spiritually on the mountaintop in the previous passage. Now in this passage, they are in utter chaos. Serving the Philistines. Just so we have our bearings in this passage, we would do well to remember that a couple of events that have taken place over the last few chapters, in case maybe you weren't here during those chapters, or have forgotten and slept since then, or the fallback time change has gotten you kind of in a funk. Over the last few chapters, back in chapter 10, Saul was the recipient of a drive-by anointing. Remember that? He was going and looking for his lost donkeys, he and his servant. And as they're wandering around looking for their lost donkeys, someone got the idea, his servant did, to ask the prophet Samuel for help finding these donkeys. And so they went and asked Samuel, and one thing led to another. And before Saul knew it, he was king over Israel, right? And if you've never read that story, or this is the first time you've ever heard that story, your surprise at Saul's anointing as king is Pretty much what he was feeling at the time, right? You kind of get it. But remember that Saul's appointment as king, his anointing as king, was the result of the sin of the Israelites. And that became evident all the way back to chapter 8, where they asked for a king, they demanded a king, and what we saw was that they were actually rejecting God as king over them. And so in their rejection of God as king over them, they demanded to have a king like all the rest of the nations. And so what we saw last week in the passage that we looked at there was that the people were held accountable. They were brought uh, to a place with Samuel and with Saul there, and they essentially renewed the kingdom. And Samuel told them in no uncertain terms that you're guilty for what you did. You sinned in in throwing off God's rule over you and asking for a king instead. And so what he called on was God to demonstrate God's power in front of them where they could see it and they could fear. And the people did. They feared God's power and His presence. and, And lo and behold, they confessed their sin. They realized what they had done. They confessed their sins. And then Samuel reassured them right after that. After they confessed, he told them this in in verse 20. You can look back there in chapter 12, verse 20. He said, And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. So through His prophet Samuel, God is making a promise here. He's making a promise that He's going to forgive His people and that He's going to protect His people. You're my people. I've called you. I've made you a people for Myself. I am going to protect you. That's a promise 
that God is giving to the Israelites here at the end of chapter 12. So it's this nice little moment here at the end, right? It's, it's kind of a warm, a little bit touching, you know? Everybody's kind of come to the middle. Israel has confessed their sin. They've, they've recommitted to the Lord. We're going to renew the kingdom here. God has doubled down on His commitment to them. Now, we don't know how much longer it is between the events of chapter 12 and by the time we get to verse 13. We only get this sort of vague little statement there in the middle. We don't know. It could be a little while. It could be, it could be as many as three years or, or more. But the point is that chapter 13 is a contrast from what just took place in chapter 12. It, it's a dramatic departure from everything that we just saw there on the mountaintop where the people are coming to the Lord in honesty and confessing their sin, and now all of a sudden, everything is turned into chaos. And what we're going to see, that led by their king, Israel is actually going to regress from everything that was done in chapter 12, regress from everything that was done since their founding. Turn back time all the way back, in fact, to the garden. And what we're going to see over the next three chapters is that Saul is going to fail in several ways in following after the Lord, which is going to lead to his eventual demise as Israel's king. But first we're going to see Israel's regression in that the people fear the threat of the Philistines. The people fear the threat of the Philistines. So the military of Israel, it says, are divided into two places under two commands. Essentially, Saul takes one group of 2,000 men. He encamps at a town called Michmash, which we all know where that is. And Jonathan, who we later learn is Saul's son, and is at this point in the story the prince over uh, Israel, takes another group of 1,000 men and who guards the home front at Gibeah. And we all know where that is. Now, even if you're sitting there and you go, I can't picture Israel's geography. I don't know where any of these towns are. Join the club. Most people can't. Geography is hard. Um, but just remember that the story points out Saul is at Michmash. That's going to come up later on. So just put that pin in your brain. Saul is there encamped at Michmash. So the Philistines have been a thorn in the side of the Israelites. And it seems like Jonathan basically has just had enough. And he takes his thousand men from Gibeah, and he marches right up to the garrison of the Philistines in a nearby town of Geba. Now, Gibeah, where Jonathan is, is about two miles south of Geba, where the Philistines are. So the Philistines are just north of Jonathan by about two miles. And so if you go from, from where Jonathan is up to where the Philistines are, it's two miles. If you go up from where the Philistines are another two miles, you get to where Saul is. So what you're seeing is that Saul and Jonathan really have the garrison of the Philistines surrounded with all of their men. But you notice that Jonathan is the one that goes up and fights the Philistine. It, it seems a little bit odd, doesn't it? That the king who has more men stays where he is, even though he is equidistant from the Philistines. He doesn't surround the Philistines like he could, and leaves it to Jonathan to take a thousand men 
and go defeat the garrison of the Philistines. So that's a little bit strange. But nevertheless, Saul, after Jonathan defeats the Philistines, Saul blows the trumpet and he calls the messengers of Israel together and tells them, you know, let all of Israel hear that the Philistines in Geba have been defeated and their occupation of Geba is over. Well, as they say, a lie can make its way around the world before the truth can put its shoes on. You've heard that expression? So all the people do hear that the Philistines have been defeated, but what they actually hear is that Saul has defeated the Philistines. That also stands out as a little odd, doesn't it? Saul technically did nothing. It was Jonathan that defeated the Philistines. But nevertheless, the people are called together to go to Gilgal and meet Saul there. That's part of the message, is join with me because now the Philistines are really mad, right? So join me at Gilgal. And now we're going to talk more about that in a second. But that's pause the story there. We get the, the, the Philistines have been defeated at Geba. Jonathan has done the defeating. Saul has called everybody, said, meet me at Gilgal because now we've got a real skirmish on our hands and the Philistines are not going to take this lying down. So everybody's packing up to meet him at Geba, and we transition a little bit away from that. So Saul blows the trumpet. Now, needless to say, the Philistines are kind of mad. So in verse 5, look at what happens. They bring out 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. It's a little bit of an overkill, I think is what we call that, right? But notice how the, the, the Philistines are described there. They bring out enough men so that their troops are like the sand on the seashore in multitude. That, doesn't that, the words there kind of ring a bell to you? There was a promise that was made that God promised to Abraham that his people would be like the sand on the seashore in multitude inside the promised land. Wasn't that the promise that God gave to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12? And now what is it that we find here but that actually the Philistines in the promised land are like, their military is like sand on the seashore. So that's a little bit strange. 36,000 Philistines versus at most 3,000 Israelites. And notice also that the Philistines come up against Saul at Michmash as Saul leaves Michmash for Gilgal, which is further east. This trip to Gilgal is certainly a meeting of the minds, sure. He's calling everybody over there. But we get the impression also that it's a retreat. I don't mean a vacation kind of retreat. I mean a fleeing before the Philistine army who is now upset that their garrison has been defeated and they're mustering all many of their army up against Saul. So his retreat from Gilgal is not just calling everybody together, it's also running from what the Philistines are currently doing. And so you see that in that Saul's men see this impressive force of the Philistines that are coming up against them. They're coming out to battle and they head for the hills. Look at verse 6. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in, the, in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews 
crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. So, pay very close attention to what he just said there, what the author just said there. Not only did they run, and not only did they hide, but some of them against the Philistine army who appear as a multitude like sand on the seashore, many of them go even as far as leaving the promised land. Okay, if you were a Jewish audience, you would go, leaving the promised land? Wait a minute. Wait, wait just a minute. We're not ten verses from God promising to not forsake His people for His own namesake. And now the promised land that He promised to give them, they are fleeing before a multitude that He promised to make them. You get it? There's a, there's a, isn't the time reversing right now? And the answer is yes. We're winding back the clocks here as the people are cowering in fear over this multitude of an enemy that is before them, that they're looking at. Israel still has even further to fall, though. The second stage of regression that we see is that out of fear, Saul disobeys God. Out of fear, Saul disobeys God. Remember back in chapter 10 when Samuel anointed Saul, Samuel told him a few things that were going to take place as a way to verify that what just happened was real. If somebody came up to you and poured oil on your head and said, you're now king over a people, you would probably go, you're a crazy person and I'm not listening to you anymore. But Samuel gave him a way of verifying that what he was talking about and what he did was actually true and real. And he gave him three signs that were going to be fulfilled. But then after those three signs, he gave him a command. And this is what he said. And you can look back at chapter 10, verse 8. So it's just probably a page in your Bible, maybe. Verse 8, he says, This is Samuel talking to Saul. Then go down before me to Gilgal. And behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. So Saul has marching orders. He's told, this is what you've got to do. However, and and what he's told is, you need to wait seven days until I get there, and when I get there, I'll do the offerings. Okay, And then I will, very importantly, tell you what you have to do. However, the passage that we're in this morning, which Saul clearly violates Samuel's words to him of waiting seven days, right? And, And clearly violates Samuel wanting to do the offerings... Saul clearly violates that. The passage that we're reading this morning occurs at the very least three years from the time period Samuel gave him that command. At the very least, it's three years. We see in verse 1 of this passage, Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, all of these events now in, in chapter 13 take place. So, this is at least three years later, I think. And Saul summons everyone to Gilgal, and he waits for Samuel there the required seven days. Now, the event when Samuel tells Saul to wait, all the way back in chapter 10, 
And Samuel and Saul, excuse me, understanding that he's supposed to wait seven days here in chapter 13, aren't the same two events. Okay? That's how we put it together. They're not the same two events. These are, at the bare minimum, three years apart. So they're years apart. Second, Samuel and Saul, in between chapter 10 and 13, have actually been to Gilgal together before. All right? So there was, there was times where they met at Gilgal in between 10 and 13. So I think these things are a considerable period of time apart, and the command of Samuel to wait seven days here is obviously we see infringed upon here in 13, but they're two different commands. We see that same seven-day waiting period um, that is commanded here in chapter 13. What I think is happening here is that Samuel has a standing order for Saul. Anytime you are set to go into battle with anyone, you meet at Gilgal for the purpose of offering sacrifice to the Lord, and you wait seven days for me to get there. Now you might ask yourself, what's with seven days? Why can't we get this up? I mean, the Philistines are coming in seven days, seeds a little ground to the enemy. Well, seven days actually is the amount of time that the priests had to await to be consecrated before the Lord, before they could do anything. They had to sit there in silence basically seven days and wait for their consecration. We see that in Leviticus chapter 8. So what happens at Gilgal seems to be the location where those consecration ceremonies are supposed to take place. And that's why, after they pick a fight with the Philistines, and all the Philistines muster their army, everybody heads to Gilgal, because we got a fight on our hands, and we need some consecration. So, Sam, so Saul is waiting there at, at Gilgal in order to prepare for battle, and he's supposed to wait seven days. And when Samuel gets there, he's going to offer the sacrifice to fully consecrate all of the army, and then very importantly, he's going to tell them what to do. That's important, right? Now, maybe 10% of you in this room even care anything about that. All right? I get that. All right? And you get in there and you're like, I, 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 that doesn't really, what does that matter to me? I don't, it doesn't really matter at all. But here's the reason why that is important. Because what Saul does in verses 8 to 10 caused the kingdom to be stripped from him. That's a huge deal. Say it louder, James. It's a big deal. Big deal. So it's a massive deal that he's not. And, and honestly, on the surface of what Saul does here to get the kingdom stripped away from him, let, let's be honest, kind of makes us feel like it seems a little bit excessive. I mean, what he did, I, I can kind of relate to. I, I get. I, I kind of understand. Okay, so he he transgressed. He sinned. But it seems to be a big punishment for what amounts to be, what looks to be, a minor offense. But if we were to take a trip through the Old Testament, here's a few things that we would see. Moses is barred from entering the promised land because he struck a rock instead of speaking to it. Uzzah is killed on the spot for trying to catch the Ark of the Covenant as it fell to the ground. He's going to hit the dirt. And Uzzah reaches out to catch it like you've probably done a million times in your kitchen. As you fumble something, you reach your hand out to catch it. Maybe even out of a natural reaction, he reaches his hand out 
and God takes him on the spot. David is punished at the end of 2 Samuel for counting his people. Countless other people are held accountable for, in very serious ways for similar, what we might call, seemingly minor offenses. So instead of looking at what happened to Saul here and saying, seems a little bit unfair, perhaps it would be better to say a couple of other things about it. First, God is serious about obedience to His law and is uncompromising. And second, God holds leadership to an even stricter level of accountability. Saul should know better. So Saul waits seven days, but Samuel appears to be held up. Maybe he's testing Saul. We're not really told. He's just not exactly on time. Maybe he just doesn't have a watch. I don't know. But he doesn't seem to appear there at the second that Saul anticipated him being there. Saul looks around, and what does he see? An encroaching Philistine army. He sees all of his army fleeing, running from even the promised land. And they're terrified. All the people are terrified at the forces of the Philistines. Saul is terrified that he's going to lose his entire army. And so, as a matter of pragmatism, he disobeys Samuel, he disobeys God, and he just takes care of the sacrifice himself. Let's just consecrate the army right now, and let's prepare for battle. So he sacrifices to the Lord in a way that wasn't the way that God commanded him to do it. So when Samuel comes up there, Saul goes out to greet him in what might be my favorite couple of verses in all the Old Testament. The funniest verses for my money that there is. You can just picture, you can hear Saul's tone and his voice as he runs up to greet Saul. Sam, I mean Samuel, Samuel, there you are. Hey, buddy, we were waiting on you. And, and you know what? You're going to laugh. You're going to laugh at this. One day we're all going to look back on this with some smiles, I'm sure. It's like, it's like that time you come home and your dog has spilled the trash and has got the trash can lid hanging around his neck and you're like, did you do something? And he won't look at you. He's just kind of looking at the ground, you know. Saul's running up with brisket in his mouth and he's kind of like chewing it. Where'd you get that brisket kind of feeling? So Samuel just cuts to the quick and in verse 11 he says, what have you done? He knows. He knows exactly what's happened. Notice that inside Saul's explanation for what he has done, there is no less than three excuses. Look with me at verse 11. When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come up within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So uh, what, what had happened was, I forced myself and offered a burnt offering. <laughs> First, my people were leaving and their people were coming. Second, you were late. Where have you been? And third, I didn't want to, you see, but I, I, I forced myself to sacrifice to the Lord because, well, we hadn't done that yet. You can almost hear the voice of Adam, the woman that you gave me. Right? Or Aaron, the priest. I just threw some gold in there and out popped the calf. Right? <laughs> so Samuel makes clear what Saul has done. Look here in verse 13. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. 
you have not kept the command of the Lord your God which, with which He commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. See, Saul's disobedience was so severe, not because of the level of offense, what we might consider a, a severe sin, but because of the one he offended. You have disobeyed God. If two fans were at the World Series and they got into a skirmish with each other, they, they might be held, they might be ticketed, maybe they would have some minor fines and things like that, but more or less, things would go back to normal on the next day. If they ran onto the field and assaulted one of the players on the field, the punishment would be more severe, the ticket would probably be higher, they would probably be held in jail for a little bit longer. But imagine what would happen if one of them made his way up to the suites and found the suite where the President of the United States was there watching the game and managed to make his way into this suite to assault the President of the United States. He'd probably be breathing out of a tube for a considerable period of time. Now, the level of dignity of the one offended must be factored into the level of punishment. It always has been and always will be. The level of dignity of the one offended must be factored into the punishment. People always ask, how could hell, an eternity in hell, possibly be a satisfactory punishment for sin against God? Even one sin against God. Doesn't that seem like overkill? What happens when you sin against the infinitely holy God of the universe? The one offended always factors into the level of punishment. So if Saul is held to the standard of, say, a priest or the standard of a leader in Israel's history, then the punishment more than fits the crime. If anything, it's merciful. Think about it. It's merciful. Suppose the priest grabbed the Ark of the Covenant, like Uzzah. Or let's suppose a high priest violated the rules of the tabernacle. We wouldn't think anything of the, the Bible telling us God took the man's life on the spot. This is the first clear example where Saul was explicitly commanded, these are your marching orders, and instead of listening to God, he blatantly ignored all that he was commanded and chose to err on the side of pragmatism instead. But if you take a step back, the actions of the people in the previous paragraph as they run from the Philistines and the actions of Saul here actually have a lot in common. In both cases, the, uh, both of them respond in fear out of a distrust of the promises of God. We read what God had promised them through Samuel in the previous passage. And yet here are the people not trusting in the promises of God and running for their lives, even fleeing the promised land. God promised them in, in the previous chapter, in verse 20, do not be afraid. And then in verse 22, the Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake. Yet here the people see the impressive size of the Philistine army, and what do they do? 
They flee for their life. They run from the promised land. They immediately doubt what God has actually promised to them. So Saul then looks out and he watches all the people flee. And rather than say, we can defeat the Philistine army with just 600 brave warriors, instead, he chooses to not trust what God has promised him. And out of fear, he does what is seemed to be pragmatic in his own eyes. You need to understand that there is no other kind of sin than a choice to walk by sight rather than by faith. There is no other kind of sin than a choice to walk by sight rather than by faith. Are you angry with others? Has your, has your anger led to hostility and bitterness and you're holding on to it forever? And all you seem to be is angry with them? Well, if it's true that God is also angry with them, doesn't he promise vengeance is mine, I will repay? Doesn't he promise that? Is your suffering causing doubt? You're in the midst of trial and tribulation and you begin to doubt the goodness of God? Doesn't God promise in His Word that our present affliction is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us? Are you greedy for earthly possessions? Are you lustful? Doesn't Jesus say that the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which is worth more than all of your possessions? Anything you could possibly after lust for? Even your own life? So what is all of that except a doubt in the goodness of the promises of God. Every sin at its root, when you burrow all the way down, is a doubt of God's good promises, His faithfulness. There is no temptation that you could possibly encounter that isn't a temptation to doubt God's good, God's good promises. And when we succumb to sin, we opt to walk in accordance with our sense rather than by our faith. We're walking by sight rather than faith and trust in the promises of God. But isn't this the underlying point that the author is making in this passage? Isn't that the point that he's making about what Saul, what's happened to Saul and what he's done? Isn't Saul, who appeared to be the serpent crusher in verse 11, isn't he the new Adam? Isn't he the one to lead God's people into the promised land, conquering the serpent, Nahash, in chapter 11? Such a, a great victory. Isn't he the new Adam? Now we find him merely repeating the sin of Adam. Doing exactly what Adam did in almost the same way. Remember, Adam was appointed by God to rule and to have dominion. That was his creation mandate. Then what did Adam do? He was tempted by what he saw. He sinned against God. And then what did he do? He was exiled from the garden. Then Abraham later, several chapters later, receives the promise that his children are going to be like sand on the seashore. But what do we find in this passage but that it's working in the reverse? Here we see another group of people, the Philistines, appear to be more numerous than the sand on the seashore. The people then exile themselves out of the promised land. Saul then sins after, uh, against God when he's tempted by what he saw. And then after he sins, he's stripped of his right to rule God's people in God's place, in God's kingdom. 
Saul's fall from his throne is an ironic replay of exactly what happened to Adam, except it's happening in reverse. What seemed to be so promising in Saul's kingdom ended up in the same fate as Adam, and it ended up in death. Adam physically brought death to humanity. Saul's line ends with him. It dies right there. Saul's kingly lineage is over. But what Saul is proving in his sin against God is that mankind's moral needle since Adam's fall has not budged one bit. Mankind is still in the same place that they were after Adam took the fall. And it's seen here in Saul as he does the exact same thing that Adam does. If we put all sin under a microscope, what we will find there is the same DNA of Genesis chapter 3 when Adam sins is true here in me. Every bit of what Saul goes through, every bit of what Adam did, every bit of it is wrapped around my DNA. God's people instead are in need of a different kind of king. A king who doesn't have that in his DNA. A king who actually walks by faith rather than by sight perpetually. Who never cowers under the sinful temptations of the devil. And who can defeat the serpent. Brothers and sisters, the failures of the kings of the past is quite the opposite of what we find happening in Jesus Christ. See, his faithfulness to walk perfectly in accordance to God's will is an act I cannot repeat. Jesus walks perfectly by faith and never by sight. And I can never repeat that action. I cannot do it, especially for my entire life. But you understand, that's required for eternal life. That puts us in a pickle, doesn't it? If what's required of us is to walk perfectly by faith and not by sight, then we are in a predicament. So what happens in Christ is not only does He walk perfectly by faith, never by sight, but God punishes Him for my faithlessness and credits His righteousness to me. Where we might be tempted to criticize Saul, maybe even criticize the Israelites. What were you thinking? Why didn't you just fight the Philistines? Didn't he promise that he would drive out? Easy for you to say. When you don't have swords or spears. And you're not seeing an impressive army. But tell me we wouldn't do the exact same thing and try to spare our own life. See, Saul, or even the Israelites, not trusting in God... Is, is, is actually right in there with us. And we're right there with Him. But it also resulted in the same thing for His people, did it not? The people were enslaved once again. All of that mistrust of God, all of that doubting of the promises of God, and the people are enslaved once again. So Saul numbers his men, there's 600. That's twice as many as Gideon had. You remember that story of Gideon? Twice as many as Gideon, but not nearly as mighty. God took 300 men of Gideon's army. He divided them into thirds, so 100 apiece, and they went and attacked the Midianite camps in Judges chapter 7. And God gave Midian into the hand of Gideon after God himself had whittled the army down to 300. Here Saul is standing with twice as many men, 
And what is he? He's getting raided by Philistines who are dividing their camps into thirds. This is a reversal of what Gideon, what happened with Gideon. Saul isn't even as faithful as Gideon. But you understand, more than being the anti-Gideon, where Saul started this story was in Michmash. And where are the Philistines now? They're in Michmash. Saul has ceded all the ground to the enemy. He's run, he's terrified, and all of his army is really taking it from the Philistines. But he does that not because the Lord is seeking to do evil, but because rather than trusting in what the Lord has promised to him, he replaces the Word of God with a pragmatic solution and does what he thinks is right in his own eyes. And the result of that decision is slavery. Just as Adam was supposed to have dominion over the beasts of the field, but is instead dominated by the serpent, here is Israel by the end practically enslaved by the Philistines. The Philistines have taken all their blacksmiths, they've regulated their weapons, they couldn't even sharpen a blade without Philistine permission, and they've charged them an exorbitant price. So by the end of the passage, we see God's people virtually enslaved to a nation that is squatting in a land that God promised to give them. If they show up on the battlefield, He'll drive them all out. And here that nation is squatting on their land. Saul sees them coming to the battlefield. He sees his army being whittled away. And what does he do? He panics. Rather than trust what God has promised through Samuel just one chapter ago, he takes matters into his own hands in an attempt to save his army. I've got to do something here. We could really save them. Let me just do the sacrifice thing and we'll get on with it. His present circumstance says, all my people are leaving. Samuel is late. I can't win this battle without them. I must do something. So he disobeys strict instruction from God. He compromises the way God has ordered Israelite society. And as a result, people are enslaved to an enemy that should be defeated. I would submit to you that many Christians walk around in similar enslavement to the threats of the culture. There's no doubt that, I think we can probably all see this, Christianity is becoming unfavorable with the rest of the world around us. Yes, Christianity is falling out of favor. It's not an expectation that you be in church even anymore. That is fallen by the wayside. And in an effort to make Christianity more, I don't know, broadly marketable, some will soft-pedal the message of humanity's sinfulness, of God's wrath toward those outside Christ, or the necessity of confession of sin, the necessity of repentance in truly coming to Christ, perhaps even de-emphasize the importance of holy living. That's not important Wait, wait, wait. Everybody's going. So whole denominations will alter the definition of love. They'll change the definition of man and woman. They'll scrub the word wrath out of their hymnals. And all of it is in an effort to make this fabricated version of Jesus more palatable for the world around them. As people leave when the word wrath is preached, as people leave when their own sinfulness comes to the fore, they say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't leave. Don't leave. We'll just scrub that out. 
I'll just rip those pages out. I'll just change that hymnal altogether. We can take those words out altogether because that makes you feel uncomfortable. And what it comes down to is a win friends and influence people campaign that's masquerading as an evangelistic crusade. It's not evangelism at all. It's how to win friends and influence people. Don't say anything they don't like. And it's happening writ large across the culture. So I think when we take a step back, we can see, well, that's easy to spot. There's churches that are doing that. There's denominations that are doing that. The problem is out there, right? It's harder to see it when it happens at your own dinner table. It's harder to see it when it happens inside your own heart. It's harder to see when in, instead we take Saul's route and disobey God out of fear of man. Perhaps instead of raising your kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord, you opt to work longer hours, so you either make more money or impress the bosses by your work ethic. Or perhaps you fill their schedules full, so that there are times where, look, Sunday mornings are even compromised. We can't really gather together with the church body anymore. You mean instead of what God commanded, that we not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, we opt instead for work, we opt instead for calendar events, we opt instead for schedules. Doesn't this sound really similar to changing the Word of God so that our kids can fit in with the other kids and be well-rounded students, or that we can have more money and be able to provide for our family, or I'm only doing what the bosses require of me. These are pragmatic solutions that counteract what God has commanded. It's hard to see when it's in your own heart, isn't it? Yet our calendars continue to get fuller. It won't slow down at all. No. This is what the world requires. It's a busy world we live in. But ask yourself, is what you're doing really just fear in one way or another leading to disobedience? What would it mean if instead we walked by faith rather than by sight? Perhaps maybe we put stock in the promises of God that those in Christ will be redeemed to everlasting life, that this world is not your home, that one day it will all perish and you won't have anything left of your gold or your trinkets or anything else. That your suffering, even in this present world, doesn't compare with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Perhaps if we're walking by faith this way, then we wouldn't be so tempted to let the present circumstances of the culture, what people might say, the pressures that we feel to make our families well-rounded and look like everybody else, and capitulate to the rest of what the culture dictates. Perhaps we would look at that and not see those present circumstances as controlling anything about the way we do our lives. Perhaps instead we would see, this world is not my home. Perhaps Instead, we'd look to Christ where we find a king who perfectly obeyed like I never could. Perhaps that would cause us to boldly preach the gospel into a culture whose winds are blowing against us stronger and stronger every day. Maybe then we could tell our wayward brothers and sisters 
who would rather scrub out the whole wrath part. Maybe we wouldn't hesitate to tell our accusative friends and family members that the answer is not to get rid of all the stuff that makes you feel uncomfortable. It's not to scrub out all the wrath parts and all the sin parts, but instead cause your eyes to turn to the cross and look to Jesus who paid the price for our disobedience. That maybe it might cause us in our discomfort to come to Christ and to cherish the blood that He shed for me on the cross, suffering God's wrath in my place. And to turn to Him in that feeling of discomfort under the wrath of God and confess honestly all my sin to Him and there at the foot of His cross find forgiveness. And when the present circumstance tells me People don't want to hear that. Change the message. Make it more palatable to the world. Maybe instead we would trust that if that were true, Jesus would have already come back. But because He hasn't, we take Peter's words very seriously. That the patience of the Lord is salvation. Meaning that the Lord is still on the march and His Gospel is still on the move. And yes, there are still people that hear it. And yes, there are still people that respond to the preaching of the Gospel. And yes, there are still people that come to repentance as they hear the wrath of God actually preached. That sinful humanity needs to be saved and that Christ is that Savior. So for us as Christians, it means we need to grow a backbone and get a thick skin and preach even if everyone else you look at seems to be not listening. In other words, what you fear will often dictate your behavior. And this passage is telling you fear God more than anything else. Fear God more than anything else. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Your Word is true. We know that. But often it's so difficult when we see in our own hearts areas that we're just like Saul. We've compromised. We've changed. Our whole family is set up in a direction that is antithetical to what you would call us to. That's hard. Grant us the gift of repentance. Open our eyes to see. Rather than pushing away from that, finding reasons to disagree, finding all these different excuses, open our mouths to confess that it's sin. Give us the gift of repentance to change. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.